Hallelujah, Father, praises to You and all glory to Your name. We lift You up, Lord Jesus. We do glorify You. And we acknowledge Your authority over our lives, over this place, over our fellowship tonight. Your authority, Father, over Your Word, which You have magnified and You have lifted up. And Father, we trust You for Your Word. We trust what's on the pages of Scripture. We trust what Your Spirit has to say to us through this. We believe and accept that Your Word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. We pray, Father, that You will continue to be incisive in our lives. And that You will continue to take us step by step, not just through Your Word for the sake of going through it, but, but day by day through the process of sanctification. So that we have the privilege of being more like Jesus. But also so those around us would have the possibility of salvation. Seeing not us at work in our lives, but seeing Jesus at work in us. That they would look at us, the world round about, our friends, our family, who, who may not understand Jesus right now, or may not have really accepted the truth of you, or who have been hurt or turned off in the past. May they see the love that you have for us in the way we treat others. May they see the consistency, Father, of our faith. May they see our good works and glorify You, Father, in heaven. Lord, as we open these pages again, we, we implore You, we invoke Your Spirit. We ask that You teach us. And we uh, don't want to go ahead of You. We don't want to go through this without You, Lord. We only want to move forward if You're going with us. And so we invite You and ask You to be our guide tonight. To open our eyes, our ears, and our hearts to what you have for us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Back in Nehemiah chapter 6, verse 15, Nehemiah tells us, So the wall was completed on the 25th of the month Elul, in 52 days. When our enemies heard of it, And all the nations surrounding us saw it, they lost their confidence, for they recognized that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Fifty-two days is all it took to get that wall rebuilt all the way around, that wall of protection and security. But I remind you, it took a little bit longer to get the project started. That Ezra had gone back several years prior to Nehemiah, and through his encouragement, the temple was rebuilt, But along with the city of Jerusalem, the temple of the Lord stood unprotected and unsecure for a matter of at least 15 years. In a hostile neighborhood, that's not really what you want. But if you think about it, in many ways, the temple itself was a barren symbol of the people whose very lives stood exposed and insecure. Unlike they had ever been before in the land. As we talked about on Sunday, when they were in the land prior, they were secure. Yeah, they had enemies. Yes, they had to deal with attack, but they were strong and secure. And they always had that leadership before them. The Lord did well with them and for a while until they went into captivity. Now that they're back in the land, it was, well, it was exactly what the Lord said would happen. I want to return your minds to a verse we've shared before. But listen to the exact application of what it was Isaiah prophesied would take place if the people ran from their God. He said, 
Isaiah 30, Thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, In repentance and rest you will be saved. Then quietness and trust is your strength. We've used that verse many times. That is a verse to apply to our lives now. The Lord always says in repentance and rest you're going to be saved. That's where you find me, in quietness and in trust. But you were not willing, the Lord says to Israel. You said, no, we'll flee on horses, therefore you shall flee. We'll ride on swift horses, therefore those who pursue you shall be swift. Now listen to this. One thousand will flee at the threat of one man. You will all flee at the threat of five until you are left until you are left as a flag on a mountaintop, as a signal on a hill. That's what the temple was. It's like a flag on the mountaintop. For those who would come into Jerusalem, no walls or the walls that had once been there, torn down, shredded, easy access anywhere into the city. And there on the Temple Mount was the temple, standing unprotected, unsecure, like a flag on a mountain, like a symbol or a signal on a hill. Have you ever felt that kind of exposure or that kind of insecurity in your life? Where you felt like if one more enemy attack came, you would crumble. You would fall. You can only take so much and you're at your wit's end and you feel unprotected. Have you ever been in the place of your life spiritually where you were questioning, Lord, are you even there? Because I'm feeling all alone in this. We see that in the picture of the temple in unprotected Jerusalem before Nehemiah comes back. It was into just such an environment of distress and exposure and insecurity that Nehemiah, the comforter, would come. And he came with his encouragement and he came with his guidance and his strength and the wall was rebuilt in just 52 days. And that sense of strength reestablished there in Jerusalem. By the way, and I was going to spend a lot longer on this. I'm not going to because I have other things to get to tonight. But it was to an exposed and insecure and frightened bunch of shaky apostles that Jesus promised to send the Comforter. If you track these things, go to John chapter 14. Maybe when you get home tonight and think this through, but Jesus begins to speak to the apostles and they know something's up. And so they begin asking questions like, Lord, where are you going? Lord, why can't we come with you? Lord, show us the way to get there. And then finally Philip says, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough. You know, don't leave us hanging. Something bad's about to happen. We're getting this sense from you. Don't leave us here. And what does Jesus say? Oh guys, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm going to send a comforter to you. And when he comes, he's going to remind you everything that I've said to you. He's going to bring glory to me. It was in that context that these guys, confused, feeling insecure, something's not right, it was into that context that Jesus promised to send the Comforter. He does it in our lives now, into our insecurity, into our doubts, into our aloneness. And He did it with Nehemiah. Nehemiah, that picture of the Holy Spirit, remember it is the Comforter who gets the job done. And Nehemiah did, 52 days. We needed a man to set things straight, someone who was trusting and faithful in the Lord, someone who would lead the people, and Nehemiah does it. Good job, Nehemiah. I like this guy. The more we study about him, the more impressed I am with him. And so that's where we pick up now at the beginning of chapter 7. The work is done, the wall is complete, it's strong, it's sturdy, it's secure, around now the temple and around the city. Now when the wall was rebuilt, and I had set up the doors, and the gatekeepers and the singers and the Levites were appointed... Then I put Hanani, my brother, and Hananiah, the commander of the fortress, in charge of Jerusalem. 
For he was a faithful man and feared God more than many. And then I said to them, Do not let the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while they are standing guard, let them shut and bolt the doors. Also appoint guards from the inhabitants of Jerusalem, each at his post and each in front of his own house. Now the city was large and spacious, but the people in it were few and the houses were not built. There's still work to be done here. The wall is up and there's a sense of security that's returned to the people and returned here to Jerusalem. In a very similar way as we've talked about, the Holy Spirit encloses us. The wall is put up, a wall of protection. A wall of security around us. Psalm 139, He encloses us behind and before. But now Nehemiah warns the people. The wall's up, that's well and good, but we need to maintain security. That pretty much is what we're going to talk about tonight. How do you then maintain security? Once the wall is around you, that protection is with you. How do we maintain an ongoing sense of that security? Well, notice a few things here as we get going. i give you several, several right up front, and then we'll spend some more time on a few more. First of all, two men were charged here of maintaining security on the wall and in Jerusalem. Hanani and Hananiah. Interesting names. Hanani and Hananiah. You might recognize the only difference between their names is the Yah. So one of them is going to have God's name involved. Yahweh. But their names mean gracious. Or God is gracious. And that's the first and most important thing to note tonight. Security is maintained by graciousness or gracefulness. Security is maintained by gracefulness. We must return to this wonderful truth again and again and again in our Christian lives. If you want to maintain a sense of the security of your salvation, it is the grace of God. And we so easily wander away. I think naturally human beings are legalists. It's why we pile law upon law upon law trying to figure out... I was kidding before we started that uh, my only policy is not to have a policy. Which means I have a policy, I guess. But we do this in our lives. We want, we want to know the ins and outs and the structure and everything. And the Lord says, look, it is my grace that saves you. Our eternal and our immediate security depend on His grace alone. Well, I know that, Pastor Rick. Yeah, but I want you to, to get it down even deeper. Because the time may come in your life where you're wondering, am I as saved as I thought I was? I haven't been making some very good choices here and I'm repenting, Lord, but I'm not sure where I stand with you. You stand securing your salvation by His grace and His grace alone. The wall stands secure because of Hanani and Hananiah. Because God is gracious. Ephesians 2.8 By grace you've been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. And John writes in 1 John 5.11 The testimony is this. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. It is that simple. How do I know if I'm saved? Do you have the Son? Are you in a relationship with Jesus Christ? Have you given Him lordship over your life? Guess what? You are saved. Security. We can walk secure in our salvation, and our security is maintained by grace and grace alone. Secondly, Secondly, security is maintained in faithfulness. In faithfulness. Notice that Hananiah is described there in verse 2 as a faithful man. A faithful man. Let me ask you this. What would you prefer? To be a person of faith or to be a faithful person? When I was a kid, I would have thought, I want to be a man of faith. 
You know, I want to be a man. People look at me and say, he has faith. I mean, he does just amazing things. And, and there is, in the world today, there are a lot of faith movements. And there are a lot of claims to great faith out there. But hear me on this. While faith may come in a moment, faithfulness is securely maintained across a lifetime. So that's the difference between being a person of faith. Anyone can be a person of faith. I believe. I believe today. Here we go. I believe. But to be a faithful person, that's only seen in years, in decades, in a walk with Jesus. Faith, true faith is not a whim. It's a walk. And there are those who come to Jesus on a whim. And you're not going to see them after a couple or three weeks. It was a hype. It was exciting. It was fun while it lasted, but they're off to something else. If you come to Jesus for a walk, it's going to be a long-term experience for you. And that, that's why you all are here tonight. You're on the walk. You're on the walk. Faith, faithfulness is not incidental. It's intentional. It is an ongoing choice that you make. You choose to be here. You choose to be in the Word. You choose to be in prayer with the Lord. You choose to get up in the morning and lie down at night knowing that Jesus is with you. You choose that relationship. That's faithfulness. Give me a faithful man any day over a man who claims faith. Someone who has walked it out across the years and across a lifetime. You see, that's where I want to be. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4.1, Let a man regard us in this matter as servants of Christ, as stewards of the mysteries of God. In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found faithful. Faithful. I want to be that. I want to be so faithful that when he comes, he says, Well done, good and faithful servant. Hananiah is a faithful man. He is also, notice there in verse 2, he's also a fear, fearful man. He's a faithful man and he feared God more than many, which means he feared God more than he feared man. (laughs) He feared God more than he feared the many. For all the people of Jerusalem, if the people wanted to go this way and God was saying go that way, guess where Hanani was going to go or Hananiah? He's going to go where God's going because he feared God more than the many. You want to know the number one reason people sin in the world today? Number one reason I believe that there is sin in the world, aside from the sin nature that we have, it's Romans 3.18, after listing that there is none that is righteous, no, not one. And, and Paul goes down and talks about, man, their throats are open graves. I mean, they're just sinful. It's just humanity. We are a sinful lot. The last part of that verse, Romans 3.18, he says, there is no fear of God in their eyes. And that's why we're sinful. That's why people choose sin over Jesus, because there's no fear of God. I I fear that the church has kind of propagated this a bit and making Jesus the buddy rather than the Lord. And it is fearfulness that is required here. You know, my my dad, my dad was fun. My dad was gracious, is gracious, is loving, is kind. He's one of the most forgiving men I've ever met in my life. And I feared him as a kid. Now I knew I could play with him, and I knew he was fun, and he, you think my puns are bad? <laughs> Hang around with Abilene, Texas Bob. I mean, they were bad. And I had a great time with Dad, but you know what? He could pack a wallop like nobody I knew. And I feared him. And it was the right kind of fear, a son's fear of his dad, a son's respect 
and a sense of awe for his father. The Lord says, Jeremiah 2.19, Your own wickedness will correct you, and your apostasies will reprove you. Know therefore and see it, it is evil and bitter for you to forsake the Lord your God, and the fear of me is not in you declares the Lord. That's a huge problem when we don't fear the Lord, when we don't sense that, wow, you know, if I've got a choice between God's way and man's way, I fear God far greater. Man can do all kinds of things to me, say all kinds of things about me, but I fear the Lord. And that was Hananiah. And security is maintained in that, in faithfulness and in fearfulness. And security, number four, I told you we do four real quick here. It's maintained by gracefulness, in faithfulness, in fearfulness, and in nightly watchfulness. And we talked about being watchful. This is a little bit different angle here. Nightly watchfulness. Nehemiah told them, keep the gates closed at night. Don't even open them until the sun is high and hot. And the sun is up in the sky. And I like that. There's a picture there, I think. If you, when you see the sun, then you can open the gates. When the sun is before you, When Jesus is warm on your face, feel free to open the gates. Your protection is before you. But when it's dark, shut the gates. Wise words. Because night is the time to watch out for the enemy. Night is when he's at work. In the darkness, in the shadows. Now, remember, we've talked about the fact that the temple speaks of my spirit. And that Jerusalem, that city, is a picture of the soul. And that that wall is that protection of, of soul and spirit. And as we look at these things, there's the temple there in the middle of the city. And there's the city at night. And what do the gates around the city do? They allow access in and out. They allow people to come in and out of... They allow things into and out of the spirit and the soul. That's what the gates are there for. That's why we close the gates at night. To to bar access to the things of the dark. What do you mean? That movie or that book... Or those friends at work. Or wherever the darkness lurks, if you want to secure, if you want to maintain that sense of security in your faith walk, then you shut the gates to the night. You shut the gates to the darkness. You don't allow the access to the foul enemy who loves the night. That's when he comes in. That's when he attacks. That's when he lures is in the dark. Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 5, 4, You brethren, you're not in darkness, that the day would overtake you like a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of day. We're not of night nor of darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do. Let us be alert and sober. And so right off the bat, first few verses in here, we see gracefulness and faithfulness and fearfulness and watchfulness, great ways to maintain that sense of your security as you're walking with the Lord. Maintaining security around the city of Jerusalem. Now there are a few more which we'll come back to in a moment, but let's go on with verse 5. Well then God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles, the officials, and the people to be enrolled by genealogies. Then I found the book of the genealogy of those who came up first in, in which I found the following record. These are the people of the province who came up from the captivity of the exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away, and who returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own city, who came with Zerubbabel and Yeshua and Nehemiah, not this Nehemiah, but a different Nehemiah, and Azariah and Rehemiah and Nehamani and Mordecai and Bilshan, and the names will continue on. 
The rest of chapter 7 parallels the account that we already read in Ezra chapter 2. Same list. Same list of people, same names as we go on down through. Now, I want to point something out to you. We're not just going to skip over this. I use the word parallels rather than recounts because it is a parallel accounting, but it is not exactly the same. There are a few differences. Some slight differences. The names are the same, but the numbers don't always match up. For example... Verse 8, the sons of Perosh, same number. Sons of Shephatiah, same number. Verse 10, the sons of Arah. Well, Nehemiah lists 652. If you go back to Ezra chapter 2, the sons of Arah are listed as 775. Oops. If you keep going down, the sons of Pehoth Moab and the sons of Yeshua and Joab, 2,818 here, but in Ezra chapter 2, it's 2,812. And the critic jumps on this kind of thing and says, See? The Bible is full of contradictions. No. The Bible is full of absolute truth. Now let's start with that foundational understanding. I was just talking to Jim before we started. Sometimes there are things in Scripture we don't understand. And so what do we do? Do we immediately say that Scripture is fallible? Or do we maybe recognize that we are and we're lacking some perspective? That's where I go. And then I go to the Lord and say, I need your perspective on this. I'm not really sure what's going on. The numbers are different, Father. Well, the numbers might be different, Son. (laughs) And here's one reason why, and I can't say that this is the definite reason why, but one list was written out by Ezra, and now Nehemiah is rewriting, he's representing the list. He's representing the list 15 to 20 years later. Well, there's some insight. Maybe they've gleaned over 15 or 20 years. Oh, yeah, you know what? There were originally 775 sons of Arah. But on the trip there, maybe a number of them decided to turn back. So we ended up with 652. I mean, it's, it's very easy to explain and understand. There, would be, there could be differences in the list. And realizing that the Bible is absolute truth, the Bible's not going to skirt that and just put in the same number just so no one asks any questions. Does that make sense? you understand where I'm going with this? But listen to me, however you view the discrepancy, it obviously didn't bother Ezra and Nehemiah who were contemporaries and who were working on these books together. You don't think they knew there was a difference between this numbering and there was the difference in the numbering of Ezra? Of course they did. They would have seen that. They would have talked about it. Well, should we, should we you know, work the numbers a bit so it doesn't bother anybody? No, these are the numbers now. Those were the numbers then. There you go. So much of this is easy to explain if you're not coming at it with an attitude of trying to undermine Scripture. If you're just saying, what is the truth here? The Bible is a book of absolute truth, Holy Spirit inspired. It's not always pretty. It's not always even easy to understand. It's not always what we expect it's going to be. But it's always true. Psalm 86 verse 11 says, Teach me your way, O Lord, I will walk in your truth. But here's what I want you to get out of this. And we're going to jump past these names because it is just the, the relisting of these names. The numbers are not as important as the names are. It's not really the numbers that matter here. It's nice to know here are the numbers of the people and, and to have that track. The numbers aren't what matter so much. The names are what matter. The names are all listed again. They're all the same names. And where there's a slight variation in the name, it's just a variation in in pronunciation, but it's obviously the same person. So we have all the same names, and these names take up nearly two more pages of valuable Scripture space that was taken up in Ezra chapter 2. And here we go, Nehemiah 7. It's like, Lord, 
Why are you wasting yet another chapter to rewrite these same names that you wrote the first time because the Lord never tires of counting the faithful? Never bothers the Lord to review these names again. I don't think it ever bothers the Lord to go back to Hebrews 11 and recount all the names listed there of the faithful ones. Never bothers the Lord to go back to the genealogies that talk about the people who followed Him who trusted in Him, who loved Him. These are God's people. And whether we know them or not, He knows them and He never forgets. And He honors them once again. I love this verse, Psalm 112, verse 6, talking about faithfulness and long-term walking with Jesus. Psalm 112, 6 says, The righteous will be remembered forever. Righteous will be remembered forever. This is a great group of people, gang. These are the ones who gave up everything in Babylon and said, no, we're going to go back for the sake of our faith in the Lord and we're going to rebuild. We're going to change our lives and and see what we can do here. We feel led and called by the Father. Well, chapter 8, skipping on down, verse 1. Because the rest of chapter 7 is the exact recounting. If you'd like to read it again, go home and read yourself to sleep tonight. Chapter 8, verse 1. And all the people gathered as one man at the square which was in front of the water gate. And they asked Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses which the Lord had given to Israel. Well then Ezra the priest brought the law. Oh, Ezra's back. Ezra's back. Okay, he's been there all along. He didn't die at the end of his book. Now he's still there. Nehemiah's there. So Ezra and Nehemiah working together. They're there with the people. And the priest brought in, Ezra brought in the law, verse 2, before the assembly of men women, and all who could listen with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. Okay, so the first day of the seventh month, we've talked about that there's a, the, the Jewish calendar has kind of two ways of looking at it. There's the civil calendar and there's the religious calendar. So the first day of the seventh month is actually the first day of the first month on the civil calendar. This is the beginning of the new year for them. But it's religiously the first day of the seventh month because the religious calendar begins in Nisan in the spring and runs then all the way back around. Okay? So this is the first day of the civil calendar. Rosh Hashanah that is celebrated by the Jewish people, the Jewish New Year, that's the civil calendar New Year, not the religious calendar. Okay? So that's where we are right now. We're at the beginning of the civil New Year. It's the month of Tishri, which is akin to September-October time frame, the fall of our year. And the people have gathered here at the water gate and, and they've asked Ezra... To bring in the Word. To read the Word to us. Would you bring out the book of the Law of Moses and read it to us? Now it's interesting. I pointed this out before. A couple Sundays ago, they're at the water gate when they ask for the washing of the Word. When they ask for the cleansing that comes from the Word and by the Spirit. It's a great place to meet. The water gate. It's a great place to meet for a Bible conference. So they're all gathered there. Verse 3 tells us that uh, he read from it before the square, which was in front of the water gate, from early morning until midday. Let me clarify. Early morning there is literally from the light. 6 a.m., dawn. From dawning till midday. So we're talking about a six-hour Bible study. Six hours. In the presence of men and women, those who could understand, and all the people were attentive to the book of the law. So not only did he read for six hours, but he didn't lose anybody. Nobody was nodding off. Everybody was dialed in and with Ezra as he's reading from the book of the law. For six hours. And I thought, you know, we've got to try this. 
So I hope you're comfortable tonight. <laughs> Have you noticed, by the way, that we've been going longer on Wednesday nights? Have you noticed the teaching has landed more like an hour and 15, whereas it used to be 45 to 50 minutes? you know why we're doing that? I'm not trying to prove a point. And it's, and it's truly not because Pastor Rick just can't shut up. There, there's a reason why we are where we are. I think we can handle more than we could three or four years ago. I simply do. There's a reality here to understand, and the people that get six hours of Bible teaching, think about it. Anyone who wants to can build up a tolerance for big meals. Okay? So that when you're hungry, you can really put it away. And, and, and here's how you do it. You, you start eating a little bit, and then the next day you add to that, and you eat a little bit more, and then on the next day you add, and you eat, and you just continue to add on, to eat more. If you've been dieting, or fasting, or haven't eaten very much for a while, what ends up happening is if you come to a big meal, you can't eat it all. You start to, it's like, man, I'm just stuffed. Well, yeah, you've been dieting for three weeks, so your stomach's not, you know, shrunk up a bit. But if you want, in fact, let me give you some advice. Thanksgiving's around the corner. Start now. <laughs> That's the deal. Start preparing now for that glorious day of gluttony. You know, get a turkey leg. Go home tonight and just have one turkey leg, okay? And then tomorrow have a turkey leg and a wing. Okay, and the next day add turkey leg, wing, and breast, and then the next day you can throw in the neck and you just keep eating until you can consume an entire turkey by yourself and then you'll be ready for Thanksgiving. I am just, I'm encouraging you all, this is where we want to go. No, it's not. But biblically it is. Biblically it is. If you're used to feasting on the Word, you can feast a whole lot more than if you're coming out of a season of famine. If you're used to 20-minute pop sermons, you're going to have trouble at the bridge. That's true. If you're used to getting in and getting out, give me my three points and my encouragement and my prayer and I'm out of here, man. Well, okay, there's plenty of places to do that. And if that's what you're used to, you're going to find it after a while. Boy, we've been here like 35 minutes. Hey, we're just getting started at 35. Pastor John Corson said this, and I love this. He said, if people are used to little sermonettes by preacherettes for Christianettes, they will never develop an ability to take in the strong meat of the Word. Six hours, gang. Six hours, and they stood attentive the entire time. Why? Because they were feasting on the Word of God. And the impact that it has on them, oh, we'll see the impact in just a moment. But the Hebrew writer says in Hebrews 6.13, everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the Word of righteousness. He's an infant. Solid food is for the mature. And are we not being called to a mature man, a mature woman in Christ Jesus? Shouldn't we be moving forward? I mean, it shouldn't be, wow, he went really long tonight. It should be what I hear from Spencer from time to time. Could you keep going, please? Let's go more. Why are we stopping? I'm half full, man. And I love to hear that. Do you want to increase your appetite for the Word of God? The more you take in, the more you will be able to take in. That is exactly how it works. The opposite is true as well. The less you take in, the less you're going to be able to take in. Job 23, verse 12, I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. Jeremiah 15, 16, Les's favorite verse. He says he owns it. I, am, I don't think that's fair. Your words were found and I ate them. And your words became for me a joy and the delight of my heart. Man, feasting on the word. Ezekiel 
Chapter 3, verse 3, Ezekiel says that God said to me, Son of man, feed your stomach and fill your body with this scroll which I am giving you. And then I ate it, and it was as sweet as honey in my mouth. And he's talking about the Word of God. Sweeter than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. The more you're in the Word, the more you'll want the Word. And that's how it works. So, six hours of Bible study. They are rolling now. And verse 4 tells us, Ezra the scribe stood at a wooden podium which they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mattathiah and Shema, Anaiah and Uriah and Hilkiah and Maasiah, and on his right hand, they were on his right hand, and Pedaiah, Mishael, Malkijah, Hashum, Hash, wow, Hashbadana, and Zechariah, and Meshulam on his left hand. Verse 5. Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people, and when he opened it, the people stood up. <laughs> Ray Rent tells me a story about um, speaking at a men's, um, basically it was a, a men's institution for, for drug rehab down in South America. And he opened up the Bible and he said they jumped to their feet. And if you've heard Ray speak, you know Ray can get a little excited. They jumped to their feet, you know, he says like this. And they stood there at rapt attention, and they had Bibles open, and they were ready to hear the Word. And I'm going... And he said, Rick, it blew me away. They just jumped up. They were so ready for it. And that's what's happening here. He opens up the scroll. The people jump up to their feet. Verse 6, Then Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen! Amen! Well, they lifted up their hands and they bowed low and they worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And also, verse 7, Yeshua, Bani, Sarabiah, Yamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Maasiah, Kalita, Azariah, Yotzebad, Hanan, Pelaiah, the Levites, explained the law to the people while the people remained in their place. They read from the book from the law of God, translating or literally explaining to give the sense so that they understood the reading. Now that's what we're doing right now. This is part of the spiritual experience in Bible study, in reading and understanding the Word. I had an interesting conversation with Jeff and Steve last Friday and we were, we were talking again about this idea, two words that are used for the Word in Scripture. There's actually a third word which means Scripture. But words that are translated Word of God, and one is Rima, which means spoken word, and one is Logos, which means the written word or the, the word who is Jesus. And which is it, the back and the forth between Rima and Logos? And you know it's both. It is a hand-in-hand deal. You don't separate one out from the other. The Rima is not more important than the Logos. The Logos is not more important than the Rima. And what's happening right now is both. You've got Logos in front of you. You're hearing Rima, the word of the Lord. Now, as you hear, by the way, did, did you get my email this week from Sunday? The email that I sent out, and I was so blessed when I got several emails. Sunday, I, I made the comment about Simon of Cyrene carrying Jesus' cross. And I said, there's nowhere in Scripture where Jesus carried his own cross. That Simon carried it for him. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke are very clear. They just say Simon carried the cross, and they make no mention of Jesus carrying his own cross. And then... Sunday afternoon I went home and I'm thinking about that that, and I said boy I said that awfully emphatically I really ought to double maybe triple check that and I went back and John 19.17 and Jesus was bearing his cross all the way to Calvary and I went oh 
And then I began to look at it, and then the emails started to come. (laughs) And as they came, the first one came, and I went, all right, someone caught me on that, excellent. And then the second one came, and then the third, and then the fourth, and I was just going, yes! And it so blessed me, because people were genuinely taking the Word, going home, and checking it for themselves. And that is part of what's going on here. As I'm speaking, it's not automatically the Rima. Maybe, may very well be the Lord speaking a word through me tonight as we study His Word, His written Word. That may be what's going on, but there may be times where it could kind of get off a bit. So what do you do? You check it out. And you see and you study. Like the people of Berea who were, Acts 17 tells us, more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the Word with great eagerness, examining the Scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. And by the way, if you didn't get my email, I'll just share with you, I still think Jesus didn't carry His cross. Because I think the implication in John 19.7 is that he bore the cross to Calvary. In other words, he bore the weight of it. He bore the, the, the implication of what was going on. He carried that heart, soul to Calvary. And I think that marries well with the fact that Matthew, Mark, and Luke say Simon carried it. Now, is it possible that Jesus carried it part of the way and collapsed and then they pulled Simon out and got him? Yeah, sure, that, that could be the case. It's not going to break or destroy my salvation. If, if I'm wrong about this, but that, that's just, it's just Rick's opinion. But I like the fact that these Bereans were, were examiners of Paul's teaching, and if they were examining the Apostle Paul's teaching, <laughs> you better well examine mine. Verse 9. Verse 9 going on, so they read from the book of the law, they're translating it to give the sense of it, so they understood the reading. Verse 9. Then, Nehemiah who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest and the scribe, and the Levites, who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. Watch this. For all the people were weeping when they heard the words of the law. Suddenly, we get a sense of what's going on. Six hours of Bible study, and the people are weeping. And, and it's not because they're just tired of it, you know. When's it going to stop? We've got five and a half. It's going to go another half. No, they're weeping because of what happens when you're in the Word. They're not weeping, by the way. I don't think they were weeping just out of recognition of their sin or recognition of their lack or recognition of how they are not keeping the law. I think it was recognition of God's great compassion. I think that's what brought them to the point of weeping. Think about this. What, what specifically was it that they were hearing? Look at the verse there. They were reading from the book, we're told in verse 8. Back in verse 1, they were reading from the book of the law of Moses. What is the book of the law of Moses? It's Torah. It's not Deuteronomy. It's not Leviticus, it's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. It's the whole story of Israel. And the whole story of Israel, gang, contains law and commandments, but it also contains passion and love and a father's care for a people and God's dramatic desire that the people would stay with Him. And Him giving them opportunity after opportunity and grace upon grace to be saved. It's not just ordinances. 
It's the overarching story of God's love for His people, His goodness, His mercy, His loving kindness, and His grace, and you can't hear that for six hours and remain unmoved. They got the big picture. And this is the wonderful thing about a six-hour Bible study. You get the whole thing at once and you see, like jumping into the Goodyear blimp and flying over the parade route, you see the whole thing happening all at once. And here's the message of Torah. It is not the law. The message of Torah is grace. You realize that, that, and I've done this myself, I've been guilty of this, Israel was not just a law-abiding people. Grace was not new when Jesus came on the scene in the New Testament. Grace has been God's prescription from the beginning of time. It has been grace, grace, grace constantly throughout Scripture. Why was the law added? So sin might increase. So that where sin increased, grace would increase all the more. The fact that Israel wasn't completely destroyed is because God is a God of grace long-suffering and patient and giving them years and years to wait until Jesus came so that salvation could come by faith in God's grace. Jewish salvation, salvation was never about how many laws they could keep. David violated at least three of the ten. Do you believe we're going to see David again? You betcha. In fact, he may even be, be Jesus' vice president in the Millennial Kingdom. Tell you why I think that another time. It is a love story unparalleled. It is the story of grace and it's a picture for us all. Paul says, Romans 2 4, do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? It's the kindness of God that leads us to verse 9 where the people are weeping. They recognize his grace. But what does Nehemiah and Ezra and the Levites, what do they say? Hey, God, wait, wait a minute. This day is holy to the Lord. This is a holy day. Don't weep. Don't mourn. Because the people were, were weeping. And verse 10 says, Well, then he said to them, Wait a minute, wait a minute. He who? Because in verse 9, it was Ezra, Nehemiah, and the Levites, the whole group of them who were teaching and speaking to the people. Well, then he said to them, Who's he? Who's, who's speaking here? It doesn't matter. If it was Ezra, it was the helper. If it was Nehemiah, it was the comforter. Helper, comforter, either way, the Holy Spirit is getting a message across to this people. Then he said to them, Go and eat of the fat, drink of the sweet, and send portions to him who has nothing prepared, for this day is holy to our Lord. Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The joy of the Lord is your strength. One of the most profound realities in all of Scripture. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Note this. He doesn't say joy in the Lord is your strength. And he doesn't say joy about the Lord is your strength. Or even joy because of the Lord is your strength. He says the joy of the Lord. So whose joy is it? It's not yours and mine. It's His. It is the joyfulness of God that provides strength to His people. The joy of the Lord. Psalm 1611, In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever. That's why Paul says rejoice in the Lord. And again I say rejoice. Because to be in the Lord is to be in the presence of joy. And that's where we draw our strength. 
Boy, I never saw that before. I've always thought joy of the Lord is my strength. Well, that's, I've got to be happy. I've got to drum up some sense of joyfulness in the presence of God. No, no, it's His joy. Which means even in my sorrow, I am drawing strength from the joy that is of the Lord, that belongs to the Lord, that comes from the Lord. It's His joy. Security is maintained in His joyfulness. That's number six in our list, I think. Do we have a number five? Oh, we did. I didn't even tell you what it was. Back when I was talking about getting stuffed on food, if you're taking notes, number five was security is maintained in an increased capacity for fullness. The more you take in of the Word, the more you can take in of the Word. And you want to maintain that sense of security, you're going to be in the Word and you're going to increase your capacity. You're going to get fat on the Word. Man, amen to that. Get big on the Word of God. And now security is maintained in His joyfulness because it is at the heart of God to be joyful. Jesus even went to the cross for the joy set before Him. Hebrews 12.2 And Jude 24 tells us He's able to make you stand in the presence of His glory blameless with great joy. Because in the presence of the Lord there, there is joy. Verse 11 So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be still, for the day is holy. Do not be grieved. I I really like this. There's far too much tradition that equates holiness with, with somberness. To be holy is to be serious. Not according to Scripture. To be holy is to be joyful. To be holy, to be pure, is to be happy, is to find freedom, is to find release. That's where holiness brings you, not to that place of somberness and seriousness and grinchiness. A holy day is not to be a day of mourning and sorrow, it's to be a day of joy. So if someone comes up to you this Christmas season, and they refuse to say Merry Christmas, so instead they think they'll get around it and they say Happy Holidays, you just respond, Hey, thanks, Happy Holy Days to you too. It's a holy day. A day set apart. A day for the Lord. Ezra and Nehemiah might as well have started singing right here, Happy Holy Days. Because they're trying to get a point across to the people. They're saying, don't stay stuck in your sinful state. It's a holy day. It's a holiday. Be joyful. Rejoice. Verse 12, all the people went away to eat, to drink, to send portions, and to celebrate a great festival. And you might just notice part of rejoicing is providing for him who has nothing. Did you catch that? Eat the fat portions and drink the sweet wine and and make sure as part of your joy and your celebration that you're looking out for each other. Someone doesn't have it. Send some to them. There's joy in that. So they did this. And they celebrated a great festival because they understood the words which had been made known to them. Verse 13. Then on the second day, so this is the day after, the six-hour Bible study and the weeping turned to, to joy, and everything's going well. On the second day, the heads of the Father's households of all the people, the priests and the Levites who gathered to Ezra the scribe that they might gain insight into the words of the law. They're back. Six hours wasn't enough. Can, can we get some more? You know, seconds. I mean, think about it. Thanksgiving, what a great meal. It's the only meal where you eat and eat until you're stuffed. And then like three or four hours later, I don't know about you, but in my family, we're back at the microwave reheating the leftovers. Yeah. Because you've got to have more, right? 
So they've come back and they want to reheat. They want to hear it again. They want more explanation. Can you give us more insight into the words of the law? I love that. Verse 14, they found written in the law how the Lord had commanded through Moses that the sons of Israel should live in booths or tabernacles, sukkahs is the word in Hebrew, during the feast of the seventh month. So they proclaimed and circulated a proclamation in all their cities and in Jerusalem saying, Go out to the hills and bring in olive branches and wild olive branches, myrtle branches, palm branches, and branches of other leafy trees to make booths or tabernacles as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and they made booths for themselves, each on his roof. Remember, roofs in Jerusalem and around would be flat, be more of a, of a patio or a porch. So they made these booths outside there. And uh, each on his roof in their courts and in the courts of the house of God and in the square of the water gate and in the square of the gate of Ephraim, which by the way is an 11th gate that we didn't mention when we talked through the 10 gates. Oh no, it's going to ruin the whole picture. No, it's not. You see, back when Nehemiah talks us through the 10 gates in Nehemiah chapter 3, it's still only 10 that are mentioned because I believe the Lord still had a very specific picture He wanted to leave for us. So he just left out the gate of Ephraim and we found out later that that's over there. Uh, and you'll see it in chapter 12, verse 39 too, that the gate of Ephraim is an 11th gate somewhere there on the wall. Well, verse 17, the entire assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in them. The sons of Israel had indeed not done so, and this is striking, they had not done so from the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, to that day. Amazing. And, and there was great rejoicing. Feast of Tabernacles, Sukkah. A wonderful time, a time of celebration and fun. I mean, it's camp out time. Where all of Israel's invited, come to Jerusalem. We're going we're gonna to put up tabernacles all over. We're going to camp together. We're going to praise God together. We're going to spend seven days doing this. And ever since Joshua brought the people to the land, they said, eh, we got better things to do. Really? Better things than gathering with your people and celebrating and camping out with your kids and remembering the great history of coming through the desert? Really? You got better things to do? than Yeah. They just blew it off. They had nothing to do with it for all that time. But now there is great rejoicing. And here we go again, verse 18. He read from the book of the law of God daily. From the first day to the last day. So what started as a six-hour Bible reading has turned into an entire seven-day conference of reading in the Bible daily. The people gathered around and they're going back and sleeping in the tents, the, the, the booths that they've erected there all around Jerusalem. They celebrated the feast seven days and on the eighth day there was a solemn assembly according to the ordinance. Why did God proclaim this feast and why was it so important to keep it? Well, we've talked about this before. I'm going to give you... a a little bit of insight tonight, but if you want a fuller picture, we, we studied this when we were in Leviticus. We had a whole teaching called Holy Days, and, and we looked at each one of seven feasts that God gave to Israel. Seven specific feasts that He gave throughout the calendar year, and each one of them, uh, picturesque and prophetic and wonderful, they both they, they commemorated the past and they anticipated the future, and, and you can hear more about that. It's in Leviticus if you want to listen to that on, on the website. But rabbis called this the, uh, the Feast of Sukkot, or, or the Feast of Tabernacles. They call it the holiday. The holy day. 
Because that's what it was. This is the most joyous of the, of the holidays, of the festivals, the feasts of Israel. A time of great joy. Even today, they continue to do it now, back in the land today. Now, I haven't been there. Don has told me about it, and I cannot wait someday to be in Israel for the Feast of Tabernacles. It's apparently just a, a marvelous time. An exciting and a joyful time. But the people, it's multifaceted. There are several things that go on, and and again, I won't get into all of them, but there's one thing I wanted to share with you that happened every day of the feast. As the people were staying in those sukkahs, well, they would come out, and every morning a group of of priests could be watched going down to the Pool of Siloam. The Pool of Siloam. Siloam means sent one. So they went down to the Pool of the Sent One, with a gold pitcher. It could hold about a, a quart, maybe a little less than a quart of water. And they'd take that golden pitcher, go down to the pool, and they'd scoop in some water. And then they would carry that back up to the temple. These, this group of priests and the people watching, you know, they know what's going on. They'd take it up there, and they would go before the altar of the Lord, and they would pour out the water right there in front of the altar. Well, why did they do that? Well, it, it, was, it was a thanking of the Lord for His provision of water in the desert, for one thing. Because the sukkahs were about camping out. And they camped for 40 years. And in those 40 years, amazing, they always have water to drink. God always provided the water. As He provided the manna and the quail and the other provision for the people. So the pouring out of the water was a reminder of that. Hey, we're we're camping like they camped and the pouring out of the water because God provided water. But also, at the same time, the people would be praying for the early rains. So they pour out the water as, as a way of praying to the Lord, bring the early rains. Because Jerusalem is, is subsistent, needs those early rains to come, for the crops to grow and, and for everything to work right. By the way, interesting, and they wouldn't have really understood why they were doing this, but simultaneously, while water was being poured out of one golden pitcher, wine was poured out of another one. Water and wine. A picture of water and of blood. And John tells us in 1 John chapter 5, verse 6, this is the one, the sent one, <laughs> this is the one, Jesus, who came by water and blood. Jesus Christ. Not with the water only, but with the water and with the blood. What, what is he talking about? That's some kind of spiritual weird thing, right? No, it's very simple. John's writing this. John remembered what he wrote in John 19.34 that one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water came out. The testimony that Jesus truly had died on the cross. He didn't just swoon. He didn't just faint away and they took Him off the cross and then the resurrection was a farce. No, John says there's a testimony here. We know He was absolutely dead because water came out with the blood. That happens when the heart is burst. That happens when the body is dead. And John says, I testify to you, I saw it with my own eyes, water and blood, blood and water, poured out of Jesus. And so it's amazing here in this Jewish festival, prior to this ever happening, prior to the crucifixion, that they would pour out water and they would pour out wine, that picture of water and blood. But there's more to this. The eighth day of the Feast of Sukkot was different. For on the eighth day, and we see this here in Nehemiah 8, verse 18, that it was a solemn assembly according to the ordinance. What ordinance? Well, the priests would come back out again. And they would go back down to the pool of Siloam with the pitcher, the empty pitcher. But this time, when they returned, there was no water in the pitcher. They came back with the pitcher empty. 
They would go before the altar, tip the pitcher up, nothing would come out. What's the point? Well, while they did this, another priest would recite this prayer. Isaiah 44, verse 3. Now listen, O Jacob, my servant, and Israel whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you and formed you from the womb, who will help you. Do not fear, O Jacob, my servant, and you, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. Jeshurun is a name for my righteous ones. Speaking of Israel. He says, For I will pour out water on the thirsty and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants and they will spring up among the grass like poplars by streams of water. Why did no water get poured out? Because it was a picture of the Spirit being poured out. An anticipation of God, you promised to pour out your Spirit on us. Please, send your Holy Spirit. But there was more to it than that. Because this was a recognition, in fact, Isaiah 44 is a recognition of the coming of Messiah. And the people of Israel knew that God was not going to pour out His Spirit wholesale like this until Messiah came. When Messiah came, the Holy Spirit would be poured out as well. 470 years later, at the Feast of Sukkot, as the empty pitcher tipped and the people silently prayed, please send us Messiah, please pour out your spirit, the voice of Jesus broke the silence. You know what He said? If anyone's thirsty, let him come to Me and drink. He who believes in Me, as the Scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. John seven thirty-seven and 38. It was at the Feast of Tabernacles at that precise moment that Jesus says, I'll give you living water. As they're tipping that picture and nothing's coming out, Jesus says, it's right here. You want the Spirit of God poured out? You want to see Messiah? I will give you rivers of living water. It gets better than that. Because the Feast of Tabernacles, as I said, is just one of seven feasts that was proclaimed for Israel. Seven different feasts throughout the year. And these seven feasts, my friend, are, are the crescendo of history. The crescendo of history. You know what a crescendo is in music? It starts small, the music begins to swell, and and on a musical page you see the crescendo going up this way, and the further it goes up, the louder the musicians play until the orchestra is just blasting. And that's what happens in the seven feasts of Israel. What do you mean? Passover is first. There in Nisan, the first month in the religious calendar. Nisan the 14th, Passover happens. Followed immediately the next day by the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Followed immediately by the Feast of First Fruits. Followed then by the Feast of Weeks, 50 days later, Shavuot. That was all in the spring. Then you come around the horn and get into the fall, and Rosh Hashanah, the fifth feast, came along. Followed then by Yom Kippur, which you've heard of, Yom Kippur, and then the seventh and final feast is the Feast of Tabernacles that we're talking about. These seven feasts, well, let me just point them out. Passover is Jesus. The Lamb was slain. The Passover Lamb. Christ our Passover. And it was on Nisan the 14th while the Passover Lamb was being slaughtered for sacrifice that Jesus was hanging on the cross. The Lamb of God who was slain to take away the sin of the world. That's Passover. The next day is the Feast of Unleavened Bread which spoke of the removal of sin. Remove the leaven from the loaf. Remove the sin. How do we do that, God? Through Jesus in His death and burial and Feast of First Fruits, His resurrection. The Feast of First Fruits speaks of that. Jesus resurrected from the dead. The first resurrected from the dead. What about Lazarus? You know, 
What about uh, the little girl that Jesus rose? What, what about them? Well, they died again. I've always thought that was a bummer. Hey, you're resurrected. you got another funeral to go to. <laughs> you're going to die twice. And Jesus is the only one who died and resurrected never to die again. First one in that company of which you and I will be part. If we die before He comes, we will die once and we will resurrect never to die again. And if He comes while we're still alive, we won't die at all. So we go through that first fruits, the resurrection, and then 50 days later is the Feast of Weeks. What happened on the Feast of Weeks? Pentecost. The church began. The Spirit was poured out on the people. Come around to Rosh Hashanah which is the Feast of Trumpets. What happens when the trumpet is blown? The last trumpet. The dead in Christ will rise. And we who are alive, we will be caught up and meet with Him and see Jesus in the air. And we will be with Him forever. Feast of Trumpets speaks of the rapture of the church. And then the the, the Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Well, after the rapture, absolutely. Because between Yom Kippur and Rosh Hashanah, between the Feast of Trumpets and the Day of Atonement, they have what's called the Awesome Days. A period of time, a short period of time, just over a week, that is serious. A time of confession and repentance and preparation for the atonement finally to come, kind of like the tribulation is going to be in our world. And it all ends at the end of the calendar year for the Jewish people with the Feast of Tabernacles, which speaks of the Millennial Kingdom. Well, how does it speak of the Millennial Kingdom? Because the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. It speaks of Jesus' return, of Messiah living in and among His people. And by the way, of all the seven feasts, there's one that we know for sure we will continue to celebrate throughout that thousand-year millennial kingdom, and it's the Feast of Tabernacles. As Zechariah says in Zechariah 14:16, it will come about... Then any who are left of all the nations that went against Jerusalem will go up from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to celebrate the Feast of Booths. Feast of Tabernacles. So security. Security is maintained in, in several ways. Security, gang, is, as we said, is maintained in joyfulness. It's maintained in Open in, in fullness and watchfulness, fearfulness, faithfulness, gracefulness. Number seven and final one. Security is maintained in openness. In openness. Now, hang with me. I know you're looking at chapter nine. You're going chapter nine, verse one through verse thirty-eight. Oh, good. Okay. Okay. So Rick wasn't kidding about the six hours. Security is maintained in openness. Verse one of chapter nine. Now on the 24th day of this month, so they've had the seven days of Sukkah, the the seven days of the Feast of Tabernacles, and they've had that time of Bible reading through all that. Prior to that, remember they had the, the, the Bible teaching that led them to weep, and then they said, hey man, it's time to rejoice. And then the eighth day, that time of solemn assembly, well now it's that same month, same month, and on the 24th day, the sons of Israel assembled. They've come back with fasting in sackcloth and with dirt upon them and this was a time of humility these people have come back they were told not to weep and mourn during the days of celebration during the holidays so they didn't they partied it up and they praised the Lord but they're still thinking and the word gang has gotten in 
and they're heartbroken. And so they've come back. Verse 2, the descendants of Israel separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. I want you to understand here in chapter 9 of Nehemiah is the apex of the exile's return. This is the best that they have been. They are finally back to being God's people in this chapter and in this moment. While they stood in their place, verse 3, they read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a fourth of the day, six hours. And for another fourth, they confessed and worshipped the Lord their God six more hours. They were in church 12 hours that day, gang. (laughs) Amazing to me. And then beginning in verse 4 and running through the rest of the chapter, we have the longest recorded prayer in the Bible. The people praying. But understand and note this gang, it follows six hours of Bible study and reading and six hours of worship and confession and then they pray. And the prayer that they pray is wonderful. There's something instructive in this for us. If we focus on the Word only and we neglect prayer, we're in danger of becoming theoretical and legalistic and even arrogant. Well, we know the Word. We've got it down. And we do what it tells us to do. However, if we focus on prayer only to the exclusion of the Word of God, we're likely to become more and more introspective and mystical and easily led away from truth. Because we're spinning around in this in this place of the Spirit. And there's no grounding. And God has given us both. The Word of God and prayer. Prayer and the Word of God. And if we will humbly read and study the Word, seeking to be formed after God's will in our lives, and in addition we give ourselves openly and honestly to prayer, confessing our position before the Lord as the people are about to do, we will find ourselves worshiping more, growing in both the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we are called to this. And what we see in many churches is an either-or approach to the Lord, as opposed to taking hold of both and being willing to be filled up with both. In essence, if we take both in, we will be a well-rounded people before the Father. Now the people pray, and I'm going to read through this prayer for you. I want you to pay attention to something. As I read the prayer, just watch this, because I want to give you the arc of this prayer. Pay attention to the contrast of God's goodness and the people's guiltiness. Uh, uh, One more thing before I read the prayer. Also remember that Nehemiah chapter 9, Ezra chapter 9, and Daniel chapter 9 are almost identical. Not in what's written, but in what's happening. The Word is read. The people worship, and they break out in in confession and prayer. It happens in all three of these chapters, which is interesting. Verse 4. Now, on the Levites' platform stood Yeshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shebaniah, Buni, Sherebiah, Bani, and Chanani, and they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. And then the Levites, Yeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Hashabniah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, and Pedathiah, they said, Arise! Bless the Lord your God forever and ever. May your glorious name be blessed and exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. 
You have made the heavens, the heavens of heavens, with all their host, the earth and all that is in it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to all of them, and the heavenly host bows down before you. You are the Lord God who chose Abram and brought him out from Ur of the Chaldees and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made a covenant with him to give him the land of the Canaanite, of the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite, to give it to his descendants, and you have fulfilled your promise, for you are righteous. You saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt. You heard their cry by the Red Sea, and then you performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all his servants and the people of his land, for you knew that they acted arrogantly toward them. You made a name for yourself as it is to this day. You divided the sea before them. So they passed through the midst of the sea on the dry ground. And their pursuers you hurled into the depths like a stone into raging waters. And a pillar of, with a pillar of cloud you led them by day. With a pillar of fire by night to light for them the way in which they were to go. Well, then you came down on Mount Sinai and you spoke with them from heaven. You gave them just ordinances and true laws, good statutes and commandments. So you made known to them your holy Sabbath and laid down for them commandments, statutes and law through your servant Moses. You provided bread from heaven for them for their hunger. You brought forth water from a rock for them for their thirst. And you told them to enter in order to possess the land which you swore to give them. Praise the Lord. I mean, it's all just God's goodness, God's goodness, God's goodness. Here is the history, and they've gotten all this from Torah. They understand all this now. But, verse 16, they, our fathers, acted arrogantly. They became stubborn and would not listen to your commandments. They refused to listen and did not remember your wondrous deeds which you have performed among them. So they became stubborn and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you, back to the Lord, you are a God of forgiveness, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, and you did not forsake them. Even when they made for themselves, back to the people, a calf of molten metal and said, This is your God who brought you up from Egypt and committed great blasphemies. You, back to the Lord, in your great compassion, did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud did not leave them by day to guide them on their way, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way in which they were to go. And you gave them your good spirit to instruct them. Your manna you did not withhold from their mouth. You gave them water for their thirst. Indeed, 40 years you provided for them in the wilderness and they were not in want. This is interesting. Note this. Their clothes did not wear out. Think about that. They didn't have a place. They didn't have a Nordstrom to stop by and restock. They didn't have a clothing store nearby. They didn't even have a Target in the desert. Their clothes did not wear out nor did their feet swell. Through all that walking and marching, God took care of His people. Some believe it was the manna that was so full of the right nutrients and and enriching their lives that as they ate manna, their feet didn't swell. They were healthy. They were taken care of. Verse 22, You also gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted to them uh, as a boundary. They took possession of the land of Sihon, the king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, the king of Bashan. You made their sons numerous as the stars of the heaven, and you brought them into the land which you had told their fathers to enter and possess. So their sons entered and possessed the land. And you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, 
You gave them into their hand with their kings and their peoples of the land to do with them as they desired. They captured fortified cities and a fertile land. They took possession of houses full of every good thing, hewn cisterns, vineyards, olive groves, fruit trees in abundance. So they ate, were filled and grew fat, (laughs) and reveled in your great goodness. But they became disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their backs and killed your prophets who had admonished them so they might return to you. And they committed great blasphemies. Therefore you delivered them into the hand of their oppressors who oppressed them. But when they cried to you in the time of their distress, do you realize what's happening? We're going through the whole Torah here. You see that? And we're now about in the period of the judges. When it says they cried to you in their time of distress, you heard from heaven and according to your great compassion, you gave them deliverers. Who delivered? That's what the judges meant. Deliverers. You gave them deliverers who delivered them from the hand of their oppressors. But as soon as they had rest, they did evil again before you. Therefore you had abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they ruled over them. And when they cried against you, you heard from heaven. And many times you rescued them according to your compassion. The book of Judges is a cyclical process of the people. They're with God. They love God. They cast away God. They get sent into the hand of their oppressors. God rescues them. They come back to God. And then they skip out on God again. And it goes round and round and round through that entire period of time. You admonished them, verse 29, in order to turn them back to your law. They acted arrogantly. They did not listen to your commandments, but sinned against your ordinances, by which, if a man observes them, he shall live. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not listen. However, you bore with them for many years and admonished them by your spirit through through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore, you gave them into the hands of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great compassion, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and compassionate God. Now therefore our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who keeps covenant and loving kindnesses, do not let all the hardships seem insignificant before you, which has come upon us, our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and on all your people, from the days of the kings of Assyria to this day. However, you are just in all that has come upon us. They're they're saying, please be gracious, but you're right in everything that's happened. (laughs) You have dealt faithfully, but we have acted wickedly. For our kings, our leaders, our priests, our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your admonitions with which you have admonished them. But they in their own kingdom, with your great goodness which... With which you gave them, with the broad and rich land which you set before them, did not serve you or turn from their evil deeds. Behold, we are slaves today. And as to the land which you gave to our fathers to eat of its fruit and its bounty, behold, we are slaves in it. Its abundant produce is for the kings whom you set over us because of our sins. And they also rule over our bodies and over our cattle as they please. So we are in great distress. Remember, distress is what Daniel said these would be days of. We're in great distress. Now, because of all this, we are making an agreement in writing. And on the sealed document are the names of our leaders, our Levites, and our priests. For seven days... They celebrated. 
On the eighth day, they prayed for the outpouring of the Spirit at the coming of Messiah. After that celebration, they returned on the 24th day of that same month. And the people began to pray in open confession. Yeah? So what? So note the progression of how that came about. Celebration first. Celebration preceding confession. No, I get it the other way around. I normally think first we got to confess, right? We got to repent, confess, clean it up, face all the bad stuff, and then once we're holy, then we come to the Lord and maybe we can start to celebrate a little bit. That's kind of the mentality that's been in the church for generations, and that's not right. Celebration first. It's a holy day to you. What is recognition that you have been saved by Jesus Christ? Praise God! It starts with joy. It starts in celebration. But confession and repentance are responsive. They always come after. They always come after celebration. God blesses first. I recognize His blessing and it brings me to my knees. Don't you understand, Paul said? It's His kindness that leads you to repentance. I celebrate. He has blessed me richly. He's brought me to understand who this Jesus truly is. That I'm saved. And then I begin to recognize who I am. And who got saved. Isaiah saw the Lord. Lofty and exalted on His throne in a grand vision. First He saw the Lord. And then He said in Isaiah 6.5, Woe is me! I'm ruined! I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Peter watches a grand miracle as Jesus brings about a miraculous catch of fish. It's wonderful. There's celebration. Look at the catch of the day. This is fantastic. This is going to feed your family for weeks, Peter. Luke 5.8, when Simon Peter saw, he fell down at Jesus' feet saying, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. You see, confession doesn't precede grace. Grace precedes confession. It's grace that brings us to confession. What has so affected the people to respond the way they respond? They recognize His goodness. They recognize His compassion, His grace, fullness toward them. And that's why I said it this way. Security is maintained in openness. Open confession. It's maintained in openness and in joyfulness and in fullness and in watchfulness and in fearfulness and in faithfulness. But security comes by gracefulness. The security we have in the Lord is by His grace and by nothing else. You can do all these things to maintain that sense of security, but the source of your security is the grace of God. As John wrote in John 1.16, For of His fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. Holy Father, we see in the people of Israel a picture of our lives. Even in this prayer, Father, I am so reminded of the up and down, the roller coaster, the back and forth, of my guiltiness as compared to your goodness. And Lord, I can track in my own life how you came to me, how you poured your goodness out on me, how you showed me grace and love and forgiveness before I even understood I needed it, Lord. 
How you blessed me in, in, in a life where I was sinful and rebelling against you. Continuing to bless me to the point of my recognition. As it has been for so many of us, Father, we were cared for, loved, and graced long before we began to recognize our sin and confess it. And now, Lord, now, Father, I find myself heartbroken at my own behavior in light of Your goodness and my own rebellion in light of Your grace. And all I can do is confess I am a sinful man and I am in need of a Savior. And I praise You and worship You, Father, for Your grace. Thank You, Lord, for Your grace to Israel. And I pray through blessing and kindness that Your people will come back to a recognition of Jesus as Messiah. And I thank You for Your grace poured out to us even here tonight. Thank You, Lord Jesus. In Your name we pray. Amen.